Now please stand and let's turn in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 18 through 29, we'll read before we go to the text in Haggai 2. Okay, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given... If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We've just read there. Quoting, citing from our sermon text for tonight, Haggai chapter 2. So let's turn there now. We'll read verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. You may be seated.
Well, as you've heard already, Friday night was the installation service for our new regional home missionary, and Annie and I went down to the service down in Gettysburg. Uh, it was an exhilarating evening. Uh, lots of good fellowship with our sort of presbytery ministry family. There's this very exciting prospect of the work that Andrew's going to be doing, um, extending the church's reach here in, in central Pennsylvania. And there's some great preaching from three different pastors. When you have these services, you get uh, three different messages, a sermon, a charge to the evangelist, a charge to the congregation, in this case the presbytery. And uh, this time the charge to the presbytery was from Pastor Shane Bennett, one of the Gettysburg pastors, and he charged us from Revelation chapter 5, which was a little unexpected to me. I thought, where is he going with this? It was very eye-opening. It's the, it's the throne room scene in Revelation where you have the lamb who was slain there surrounded by the heavenly angelic worshipers singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he was explaining that that's why we do evangelism, that's why we plant churches, that's why we do the work of the church at all, fulfill the mission Christ has given to us. It's because of what Revelation 5 is telling us that God has done in Christ. He's ransomed all of these people from sin, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then he's given us the task of diligently gathering in these people that Christ has ransomed. This is glorious perspective on missions, both home and foreign. It's an inspiring reminder that what we're doing is worth doing because of what God has already done in Christ. And what God is doing even now in Christ through the Holy Spirit in the world. Of course, we look around and what we see around us tonight does not look like that heavenly throne room, does it? We see something a lot less glorious looking. There are no magnificent uh, angelic creatures full of eyes around and within. I don't see any of those right in front of me right now. I don't see an emerald rainbow I don't see any flashes of lightning or peals of thunder, torches of fire. I don't see a sea of crystal. When we gather here, we gather as a bunch of tired people <laughs> with, with, frankly, heavy hearts sometimes and bodies that just keep breaking and babies that cry and pastor who gets tired and announces the wrong times and locations for stuff. That's the church that we live in, right? That's the way we experience life in the church. But Pastor Bennett reminded us, though, that what John is doing in Revelation is he's pulling back a curtain for us that right now obscures for us the deep reality of things, the way things really are. We look around us, this is what we can see, but Revelation 5 is showing us what we cannot see, where we're being taught to behold with the eyes of faith. We're being taught that these heavenly realities, the throne room of God, underlie and give meaning and context to what we're doing here in worship and in the mission of the church. 
that give us the why and the how for the work of the church and for the Christian life. Again, it's that glorious, unseen context for our very ordinary-looking, very mundane existence day to day. Now, if that is true for us now, after the coming of Christ, after the first coming of Jesus, I want you just to imagine how much stronger that contrast would have been between seen and unseen things, that dissonance between promise and fulfillment, between present and the promised future. How much stronger that dissonance would have felt if you were living in the time of Haggai. That gap between the way things look and the way God is saying things are and the way God is promising that things one day will be. And that's the situation that we've read about already in Ezra and that we're encountering again sort of from a different camera angle now through the prophecy of Haggai and Haggai 2. We're going to look at this passage in three parts tonight. First, the unglamorous present, verses 1 through 3. Second, the unchanged past, verses 4 and 5. And then third, the unmatched future, verses 6 through 9. So the unglamorous present, the unchanged past, and the unmatched future. Okay, so unglamorous present. Uh, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. So we're now about a month in to this renewed construction work on the temple. The last chapter ended with the work getting underway in the sixth month, on the 24th day of the month. And now we're in the seventh month. Um, Interestingly, we're getting into uh, recent enough um, history here that it's a little bit easier at this point for Bible scholars to pinpoint the exact dates that are being mentioned, uh, kind of map them onto our calendar system in comparison with other events in the ancient world that are kind of fixed points for historians. Um, In Joyce Baldwin's commentary, for example, she figures, well, we know that the second year of this particular Darius was 520 B.C., and we know that the new moon for the seventh month that year fell on September 27th, and so the 21st day of the month fell on what we would call October 17th. So uh, I guess a week from this Tuesday... (laughs) (laughs) is going to be the 2,543rd anniversary of this prophetic sermon by Haggai, which is kind of neat to contemplate. Now, there's no particular application from that, although I think it brings in just the vividness of the historicity of these events in real time and space, not some just spiritual plane. But um, there's another fact about this date that is more actually significant for the interpretation, understanding the passage. And that's if you compare this date with the feast days in Leviticus. What you find is that the 21st day of the seventh month falls on the last day of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast was to start on the 15th and to last for seven days through the 22nd. And so uh, the 22nd would be the seventh day of this feast. And the, the next day, the day after this, Uh, the eighth day, the 23rd of the month, there would have been a holy convocation with an offering and a solemn assembly, and it would be a day of rest, kind of like an extra Sabbath. No work on that day. Okay, so the people have just been celebrating this holy festival 
uh, which commemorated, of course, the time when Israel was in the wilderness after the Exodus, on the way from Egypt to the Promised Land. And the Lord was taking care of them during that time. He was providing for their needs. He was humbling them. He was testing them. And importantly, the Lord himself, don't forget, was also living in a tabernacle, living in a tent with them in their midst, in the midst of the camp, moving through the wilderness. God with us. That's what was represented by the tabernacle structure, by that tent in the center of Israel's camp, which would, of course, later be replaced by the temple in Jerusalem, the first Jerusalem temple. And the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was all about remembering that time in Israel's history. But in a very real sense, Judah, now, after the exile is reliving that post-Exodus experience, right? They've come out of captivity, and now they're back in the land, but they're still not fully settled in it, right? Things are not quite right. And yet, what is the Lord doing? He's urging them to rebuild this temple for the same reason that he told them to build that tabernacle when they left Egypt. It's because of what it represents. It represents the Lord himself dwelling with them even in this new kind of wilderness-like experience, where they're back from Babylon, but they haven't quite yet arrived at the full reality of the promised future. They're in Jerusalem, yes, but it doesn't look like the glorious future Jerusalem that the prophets have been describing for them. That full prophetic hope of the last days and the, the day of the Lord. And so even now, as they've started construction on the second temple, Well, they can already tell, not only is this not the bigger, better, more glorious version of Jerusalem that we've heard about from the prophets, it doesn't even look as good as it used to look before the captivity. And, um, of course, this is not a new observation. We read about it already in Ezra. What happened a, a decade or so earlier than this when the foundation of the temple was first laid? And you remember how there was that great celebration. Yay, we've built the altar. We've laid the temple's foundations. And the younger generation especially was very excited about this. But the people who had lived long enough to have seen the old temple, to have seen Solomon's temple before the Babylonians knocked it down, they knew, looking at this new foundation, this this new building is not going to hold a candle to the Jerusalem, to the temple that we remember. And so you remember how the sound of rejoicing was mixed with the sound of loud weeping, so that from a distance you you couldn't tell which was which. You couldn't separate the weeping from the rejoicing. So now in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now that construction has proceeded a little bit, he says, Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and all the remnant. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's, again, addressing those same old-timers who were weeping ten years earlier. How do you see it now? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And he's, he's basically he's acknowledging, very frankly, yeah, this temple is, is not looking like it's going to be anywhere near as impressive as Solomon's was. This looks like a major downgrade. He's acknowledging 
the unglamorous present of their work. This work of temple building lacks luster in a big way. It looks very ordinary. It looks very mundane. It doesn't look particularly supernatural. You can find a lot of other temples in the ancient world that would be a lot bigger and better looking than this one they're working on. It is as nothing in your eyes. And Zerubbabel and those following, and Joshua and those following them, might have been tempted to feel at times, what are we even doing here? Why are we even bothering to build this? What's the point? And this is precisely why Haggai is coming again to prophesy at this moment. This moment when the people perhaps have taken a bit of a break from building to celebrate this feast of tabernacles. Tomorrow is going to be a day of enforced rest, that extra Sabbath. And um, you might find that it'll be harder for them to go back to the work on, uh, I, guess, I think it was a Thursday, I figured it out to be, when the, when the, the, the whistle blows, it's time to go back to work again. What are we doing? So I want to look at the prophet's response then. As Haggai, like that later prophet John in the book of Revelation, seeks to pull back that curtain for God's people. To help them to see with the eyes of faith some spiritual realities that they perhaps have lost sight of in the midst of their unglamorous present. He says, yet, yet, despite all of that, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Why? For I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. It's that same promise of God's presence that we ended with last time, third point last week. I am with you. After all, that's one of the main points of the uh, existence of the temple building. It's to, to send the message to Israel, not just to send the message, but actually to embody that reality that God is with Israel. God is with his people. He's dwelling with them. He's tabernacling or pitching his tent right down in among them. And I think this command to be strong because God is with you, does that remind you another time where God said, be strong for I am with you. I will be with you wherever you go. Does that ring a bell? Think about Joshua chapter 1. Right on the verge of the conquest of Canaan coming out of the wilderness that time. Joshua chapter 1, be strong and courageous, Joshua. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Be strong, for I am with you. It's the same command, backed up by the same promise. The Lord is very deliberately tying today's commands and promises for Israel He's tying those things to Israel's deep past. To the deep past of the covenant. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord. And then he goes, and if it wasn't explicit enough, just in that allusion to Joshua, he goes on, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And this is what I meant by that heading, the unchanged past. The Lord is reminding these people that my, my promises that I made to you way back then, those promises are still in effect. They haven't gone away. They haven't been canceled somehow by everything that's transpired over the past 50, 100 years. 
it's still on the basis of that ancient covenant that God is going to continue to be faithful to Israel today. He's going to continue to dwell with his people this day. He's going to continue to give them strength, help them to be strong and courageous so that they do not need to be afraid. They do not need to be afraid. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's the application Haggai gives. So just like in the exile, in the exile, God judged Israel according to the terms of the covenant. We talked about this, that this morning, right? It was according to the covenant that God judged Israel. So now he's promising to bless them by the terms of that same covenant. The covenant is still in place. It hasn't changed. The promises of God have not gone away. And so their responsibility then is the same as the responsibility of God's people has always been in that covenant relationship. Their responsibility is to listen to the voice of God, to trust Him, and to follow Him in obedience. They are to venture now boldly on God's promises, trusting that those promises can truly bear the weight that his people are, are going to lean upon them by continuing this work. So yes, yes, the present is unglamorous. That guy doesn't hide that. But this unglamorous present is growing out of a past that has not changed, a past history of God's provision and protection for Israel time after time, after time, down through the centuries, and that past history of God's promises, those promises he still intends to keep today. Uh, no doubt a lot of water has gone, un- gone under the bridge since the Exodus, since Mount Sinai, and so on. Israel has changed a lot. A lot has happened. But what hasn't changed is the character of God. What hasn't changed is the promises of God, the Word of God, the the plan of God for the whole trajectory of history, which was already in his mind even back when he called Israel out of Egypt. This second temple was in the Lord's plan before Solomon built the first one. The Lord is still very much on plan here. He's not improvising and reacting, oh no, Israel's messed up, now what do we do? The Lord is carrying out unchanged in Israel's present the very same things that he promised to them in that deep past of the covenant's origins long ago. Okay, but it's not only the present where Israel is going to see those promises come true. As they live in this very unglamorous present, they are to look to the past but not only the past, for this this hope and this confidence and fearlessness and strength that Haggai is trying to instill in them through the Word of God. In the next three verses, Haggai turns, finally, to the glorious future. He's teaching them to look backwards and forwards, both, to better understand their present. The glorious future. So, yes... The temple right now is as nothing in your eyes. Yes, it looks unglamorous. Not all that impressive. But listen, Israel. Listen, Israel. You're still living in the middle 
of the story. You're not living at the end of the story yet. The action of that story arc is still... The, we're still in the rising action. And this temple building project is, is a chapter... It's a chapter kind of in, in the thick part of the book, right? It's not the last chapter. Just like in a, in a good novel, the middle chapters grow out of the opening chapters and, and they become so much meaningful once you know the ending, right? Say, so, oh, that's why that episode happened in the middle. That's what it was building up to. So Haggai is teaching God's people here to look both backwards and forwards to understand their present situation, to encourage them in the work they've been given to do. Okay, so let's see what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Um, Some of you who are maybe more than casual fans of Handel's Messiah will um, recognize that as one of the recitative passages sung by the the bass and um, the bass soloist. So uh, last... December, we were traveling in North Carolina, and Pastor Ethan Balliard in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, OPC Church, was going through a, se- a seasonal series on some of the texts from Handel's Messiah, uh, which I've done before, too, although not this particular passage. Anyway, um, he was pointing out uh, that solo as uh, an example of what's called text painting in Baroque music. Um, text painting, where the music, the melody shakes when the bass sings the word shake. I, I won't afflict you with a rendition right now, but you can go home and listen to it um, because it helps you to, to uh, kind of hear the, the, the meaning of what's being looked forward to in a different way. I will shake as the word is extended over many beats. The melody is constantly moving back and forth and you get that sensation of an earthquake. Shake. The earth is moving under your feet and it's so appropriate for that to be sung by this rich bass voice, the floor, the earth of the music, and it's shaking. Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. God is going to shake the earth. That's what Haggai is teaching God's people to look forward to. And you think about it. What the people of Jerusalem are doing as they put up these walls of the temple does not look like it is shaking the earth. It's not shaking the earth. It's not earth-shattering stuff that they're doing. But the Lord is saying, in a little while, once more, I am going to shake the earth and all the nations. Um, Alec Matir, commenting on this, he points us back to the Psalms and the prophets, many places that describe the coming of God. God coming in both judgment and salvation. And he, he describes the effect that has on creation in the Psalms and the prophets. Think about Psalm uh, 29. It says, The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. It flashes forth flames of fire, breaks the cedars. The God of glory thunders. And, and when the Bible speaks of God shaking the earth, it's often signaling that God himself is breaking into his creation. He is coming in person. He's coming in person to reveal himself to mankind and to accomplish his work of both judgment and salvation. And you look at the effect then that this coming of God, the shaking of the earth, has. Um, first, there's a, a translation issue here we might note. Um, the King James Version in verse 7 famously says, The desire of all nations shall come. And that's the text that Handel's Messiah uses. Uh, which, which sounds like a pretty explicit reference to the Messiah. You think of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, where it says, O Come, Desire of Nations. 
bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Um, and uh, so that's one way of going with it. But the, the ESV translation you see here, well, you don't see the phrase desire of nations. Uh, it's because ESV is reflecting what more Bible scholars today is more accurately conveys what Haggai probably had in mind when he wrote this. Um, uh, that rather than desire of nations, it says the treasures of all nations. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come in, that is, come into the temple. Um, and I will fill this house with glory as those treasures of the nations flow into Jerusalem, flow in to glorifying and enriching the temple. It's, it's, it's more like if a, if a tree full of, is, is full of really ripe fruit and you shake it really hard and the fruit falls out of the tree to the ground off the branches. Um, it might be a little bit of a stretch to say that God is shaking down the nations here, but not much of a stretch. Okay, He's shaking them. He's shaking the world with the object of the resources of the nations flowing in to the temple to make the temple glorious. And, of course, we've already gotten a taste of this, right? When Cyrus sent the people back from Babylon to the land, he sent them with great wealth, and he, he told the people of Babylon to, to give the uh, returning exiles um, rich gifts for the purpose of constructing and beautifying the temple. And that, you remember, was an echo of what happened when Pharaoh sent the people out of slavery in Egypt, and he instructed the people... And, and the people of Egypt, you remember, uh, not instructed by Pharaoh, but the people of Egypt gave rich gifts to the people uh, uh, of Israel who were leaving the land, which were then used in what? In the construction of the tabernacle, right? So you've already gotten a taste of the wealth of the nations being in God's plan turned to the purpose of uh, constructing and glorifying and beautifying the temple. The nations contributing their wealth to blessing the people of God and adorning his dwelling place with them. Now, lest you think that sounds a little unfair, maybe, to the, the, the nations who are having to cough up all this wealth. Well, you've got to remember that everything that those nations have comes from God in the first place, belongs to God in the ultimate sense, and so it is God's to dispose of and distribute according to his will, according to his overarching kingdom priorities. And that's the point of verse 8, where God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Uh, Every beast of the forest is mine, he says in Psalm 50, and the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all it contains. It's his to begin with. And what he's saying is he is going to bring all of his sovereign power over the entire creation and all the nations to bear... for the protection and the provision of his people and the glory of his dwelling place with them, so that in the end, finally, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So yes, Israel, yes, you're living in an unglamorous present, but what you are doing here. You are preparing, you are setting the stage for a glorious future that's going to unfold in part on this very set that you're constructing. If you ever had the chance to work on a play, maybe like a, a, a school play or something, or a community theater, there's, uh, you know, there's the, the cast and the crew, 
there's the cast, and, and they have their own special bond because they're doing the acting, and they practice the lines and have that chemistry going on. But there's another kind of tight-knit bond among the crew, right? People who are running the lights and the sound and the special effects, resetting the stage. And, and they're the ones who probably built the stage in the first place and set up, set up the space just the way it needed to be in order for the play to take place. The drama of redemption is going to play out in the second temple, after all, when the Lord himself does, in fact, come to that temple in person when the Lord Jesus Christ walks into it for the very first time. When the Lord Jesus enters his earthly dwelling place. God in the flesh walking into the temple that was built for him all those years ago. That's an amazing thought. And now, now, not, not this now, but, but this now, today, that same Lord Jesus Christ, that same Lord Jesus Christ is doing what? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ on the, on the throne of heaven. Right now, the Lord Jesus is doing the same thing. He is shaking the nations, shaking the nations through the proclamation of the gospel so that the nations themselves are flowing in now to this spiritual temple that he is building today in our midst, out of us as living stones. Those treasures of the nations flowing in to fill God's house with glory, well, that includes us, ourselves, its people that Christ has gathered up, brought us in. So the temple he's building now is, is much more glorious than any physical building that's ever been constructed because it's made out of his redeemed people and it's filled with the presence of his spirit. It point us back to what we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 12. It just associates these, this whole set of ideas we've been talking about in a very powerful way as it first reminds us that when we gather to worship we're not coming like ancient Israel did to the uh, Mount Sinai. And not, we're not seeing that flame and uh, smoke and hearing the trumpet sound of, of God's glory descending in that um, overwhelming theophany on Mount, Mount Sinai. And we haven't come to a literal physical temple, this temple uh, that Haggai is under construction, Haggai's day having now been destroyed by the Romans. But where do we come when we gather here? We are coming to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the throne room of Christ himself, joining our hearts with those angelic beings and the glorified believers who have gone on before us in the worship of God in the heavenly places. And in that context, it is in that context of describing that spiritual temple where we gather for worship that the author of Hebrews quotes Haggai chapter 2, yet once more, I will shake, God says. Yet once more I will shake, not only the earth, but also the heavens. And that phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, the things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Yes, the Lord is shaking the earth now, and He will shake it again in an even more climactic way in the future at the second coming of Christ, when these things that we see around us are going to melt away and give way in the end. to the reality of the temple, which is going to share its boundaries with the new heavens and the new earth, the whole creation. 
a whole new creation for God to dwell with his people, that kingdom that cannot be shaken, which we experience now in seed form. We are part of that living reality even now, which is growing and spreading until it's all that remains for eternity. Now, now the application in Hebrews is let us offer to God here and now acceptable worship with reverence and awe, seeing those heavenly realities with the eyes of faith and recognizing that our God is a consuming fire who ought to be worshipped with that holy fear. Okay. So, so the next time you come to church and you look around and you're feeling kind of tired that day and a little grumpy and you look around and you think, eh, this is not very glamorous. What am I even doing here? What's the point? Remember, that's the first thing is you remember. You remember the past. You remember those covenant promises of God that have not changed and will not ever change. That he is with us. That he will never leave us. And that alone, that alone is reason enough already to labor with courage, with perseverance at the work that he's given us to do, even if we don't feel like it or even if we don't see visible fruit from it or even if it doesn't look very glamorous in the day-to-day. That alone would be enough. And yet that is not all that God has given to us. We need to remember the way that here in Haggai 2, as well as in Revelation that I referenced earlier, the Lord has pulled back that curtain. He's helped us to behold with the eyes of faith that what we see is not all there is. That what we see is not all there is. And that behind that curtain of this unglamorous present of our lives lies a glorious heavenly reality. And in the future, that glory is going to be fully revealed when Christ comes again. So it's left to us now, as it was left to these people working on the temple, to labor on. To labor on. To labor on in, in faith. In faith, trusting in those promises of the past. Seeing and embracing that hidden reality of our present and looking forward in hope to that promised future. Christ is shaking the nations. But he is bringing peace to his temple. And that's good news for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it's so hard for us to see things that are unseen. And sometimes we lose perspective and start to think, that doesn't even make any sense. But God, you've given us your word to reorient us, to remind us of the reality of things to still our unbelief and doubt and folly. To remind us of the glorious past of your promises. To remind us of the glorious 
present heavenly reality that lies behind the world of sight and sense. And to look forward to the glorious future that you have promised to us when Christ returns. Our God, strengthen our faith. Our faith is so weak and we need you. To help us to believe these things, to embrace them and to live out of them in obedience in the work that you have given us to do, to labor on, seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to accomplish these great things and to guarantee these promises for us as your people. We rest in him. We trust you tonight. Now see what help us in the week to come and beyond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.